0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Borders are, quote-unquote, important. They define in legal terms who we are, our identity, and our rights. Except borders are rarely imposed with any thought to the people actually living there, and once a border is imposed, it can radically change the lives of those who live alongside it, dividing communities forevermore. India's border, imposed by colonial authorities and disputed by successor governments, makes this clear. Midnight's borders, a people's history of modern India, published by Melville House in late May, sees author Suchitra Vijayan travel along India's vast land border to meet the people who live there, and investigates how lives have been affected by geopolitics, colonialism, state violence, ethnic strife, and corruption. Suchitra Vijayan is the founder and executive director of the Polis Project, a hybrid research and journalism organization a barrister by training, she previously worked for the United Nations War Crimes Tribunals in Yugoslavia and Rwanda before co-founding the Resettlement Legal Aid Project in Cairo, which gives legal aid to Iraqi refugees. Her work has appeared in The Washington Post, GQ, The Boston Review, The Hindu, and Foreign Policy. Today, Suchitra and I will talk about India's border regions with Afghanistan, China, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Myanmar we talk about the lives of those that live in these borderlands and why she chose to call this book a people's history. So Suchitra, thank you so much for joining me on the Asian Review of Books podcast. I'd like to start actually with the last part of that introduction. What makes this book a people's history? How has this framing affected how you approach this topic and structured the book?
0: Thank you so much for having me. Um, Big fan of the New Books Network and the podcast, so really glad to be having this conversation. The people's history is something that um, that I've been inspired by by reading people like Edward Said, uh, Zinn, and many others who who made it important to not just look at the state's version of the history. But look at communities, especially communities that have fought against state violence, um, demanded a certain kind of dignity and freedom, and right to exist as equal people. And that is true of many of the border communities, whether it is South Asia, uh, whether we look at what's happening in the U.S.-Mexico border, or anywhere in the world where communities are still trying to not only fight for that sense of freedom and dignity, but also reclaim their histories. And I think the idea of reclaiming that history is absolutely important because who gets to tell that history, who gets to map these histories becomes very contentious when you think about who gets to tell their stories. Um, While the book itself draws inspiration um, from many of the work that was produced by the new left, um, I did not want to write um, a book that was similar to Zinn's A People's History of the United States, which I think is the most famous book that carries um, the idea of history from below, because Zinn tries to respond to a history of the United States in a very specific way. When I thought about the people's history, I was thinking about those who are interviewed as collaborators in this book, the way this book was put together, the ways in which these conversations were about not Giving the voice, the voiceless. The, you know, giving voice to the voiceless, which is often used as a way um, for those of us who are immensely privileged to parachute into communities and tell other people's stories. Rather, the idea was to acknowledge upfront that the people in this book are eloquent voices. They are articulate about their political realities, their histories, and what I really wanted to do was make them collaborators in this project. Um, and the structure of the book, in some ways, was defined by this because as the book was being written, a lot happened in India uh, with the CAA-NRC protests, uh, with the race of a very Hindu nationalist government because when I started the book, it was 2013, and by the time I was done, India was radically transformed. So many of the people who were es- essentially part of the book later became very afraid for their life, which meant that a lot of the stories in the book did not make it. Um, As the final manuscript was being written, um, the structure fell apart. And in some ways, the book was again put together with those who still wanted to be in the book. Um, And in some ways, it also realizing that all stories don't have to be told. Um, Telling the story of someone is also an immense act of privilege, and it's an act um, of radical politics.
1: So why focus on the idea of a border in particular?
0: Because uh, for someone like me, and I'm sure that's true of many of us, um, borders are ubiquitous. Where we are born, to whom we are born, um, what passports we have. Completely um, and fundamentally dictate the life that we're going to have. It is—it's it's a piece of paper that defines whether you're going to be a nomad, a traveler, an immigrant, a refugee, or someone who is fleeing violence. Especially if you're, if especially if you're a brown or a black body, and I think that that has a lot of ramifications. But more importantly, I think. It was my own experience um, of travel, of of being a a small brown woman. Uh, For the longest of time, I had an Indian passport. Uh, In many places, I'm still the only person of color. I remember uh, in my cohort at Yale, I was the only person of color. We had no um, African-American students or black students. Um, Even those of us who were brown came from immense privilege of... um, uh, if not uh, wealth, uh, I didn't come from the privilege of wealth, but I definitely came from the privilege of caste and class. So so these things became very clear that often what one sees or where one ends up in life as a direct correlation to where you were born. And borders are creations not only of the empire and the colony, but they eventually, they fundamentally make unequal people, And making unequal people is fundamental to the way the world works. There's a reason why two people who are exactly qualified can be paid two different salaries simply because of where they exist. Um, This is why some people can travel, um, call themselves nomads, uh, travel in the middle of a pandemic, become travel influencers, while others, even when they travel and demand and fight for dignity, when they flee violence, are still treated as criminal Recently, Kamala Harris, the U.S. vice president, um, when in our first international travel, said, please do not come, which is a direct violation of international laws. Um, so I think that was very essential. But also borders can be, borders are not the outside, borders are everywhere. And they can be, um, they are immensely important ways for us to think about the state, about citizenship, about belonging and they just offer rich ways for us to think and have conversations about what all of these ideas of freedom dignity um and citizenship mean
1: so could you run through it's it's a it's a this is a difficult question but could you run through the history of india's border um who set them and how were they set
0: <coughs> sure um you know, this, today's you know subcontinents borders um, are usually categorized in studies uh, studied as three main lines. You have the the border that gave birth to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, India, um, and the lines are the Durand Line, the Radcliffe Line, and the McMohan Line. Unsurprisingly, um, um, these lines are named after British civil servants who knew very little about the region that they not only divided, but came to administer and rule. Uh, Of course, the Mortimer Duran line, which was created in 1893, is the oldest of them. It was um, an agreement between uh, Mortimer Duran, who was a British civil servant, and Emir uh, Abdurrahman Khan, um, the king of Afghanistan. And the agreement was actually a single-page document. It really didn't have... um, It didn't have a great detail. It had seven clauses that created not a border, but a frontier. And once the British forces left, Pakistan then inherits the Duran line as a de facto border uh, after 1947. And 1947 becomes important because 1947 is when the subcontinent gets partitioned um, between the Hindu majority India, and the Muslim majority, Pakistan, both East and West Pakistan. Uh, So Radcliffe Line was demarcated in 1947 um, during the time of the partition. Uh, Today, the Western Line um, still serves as the India-Pakistan border, and the Eastern Line serves as the India-Bangladesh border. The McMahon Line runs between India and China, and this was a result of a 1914 agreement between the British and the Tibetan representatives. Um, China, of course, has refused to accept McMohan Line and disputes um, a lot of India's claims over the northeastern state of Arunachal Pradesh. And what's interesting is that um, our uh, China does not refer to Arunachal Pradesh as Arunachal Pradesh, but calls it Southern Tibet. Um, meanwhile, India. Uh, continues to lay claims to parts of Chinese-controlled northern Kashmir, which is then ceded to China by Pakistan uh, in the remote Aksai Chin region. So what you're really seeing is multiple lines, but eventually lines that were born out of a colonial rule and administration, which continue to be deeply contested.
1: So for those people who don't get to travel to these places, and as you note in the book, it's often actually very difficult to, what are these borderlands like? What's the physical landscape? And more importantly for your book, who actually lives there?
0: Um, The Borderlands is a very... um, The Borderlands come in all shapes and forms. And before I talk about the Borderlands, I think it's very important for us to acknowledge that not everybody gets to travel uh, in these spaces. Who you are, how you look, what privileges you have can all define not only what the borderlands is for you, but also what interactions that you have with the borderlands. One thing that I found traveling through India uh, as land borders is uh, contested land borders, because not everybody agrees even that these land borders, um, what, how India sees its borders is very different than what, say, um, Pakistan sees it. Or, uh, of course, in, you have uh, Kashmiris who have been fighting for self-determination since for a really long time. So these borders themselves, there's no one agrees on where these lines begin and end to start with. Second, even as these contested places exist, the world changes every hundred feet. No two places are the same. And often what really changes um, is not only how people are treated, but who gets treated how. For example, um, a Bengali Muslim farmer without documents in the same borderlands is treated very differently from someone else. And that changes um, over and over again. In all of these places, history and memory is very, very local. So one of the efforts of this book is also to try and not generalize these places having said that there are certain things that are happening and they are happening uh, at various varying levels in these spaces one is the immense militarization that is happening while kashmir is the world's most militarized border we cannot take away the fact <coughs> excuse me we cannot take away the fact that the other borders uh, like the india bangladesh borderlands are also severely getting uh, militarized the crisis in myanmar means that the refugee flow Uh, continues and it's ongoing, and that lends to a different kind of militarization. You see in parts uh, of the border with China, the militarization is completely different. But what you're really seeing in all of these spaces is the military footprint that is increasing. And along with it, you have more men with boots, you see more bunkers, you see an extensive act of surveillance, you see appropriation of land, and more importantly, less and less rights for these bordered populations uh, who live there. So
1: Midnight's Borders starts with um, Afghanistan. Um, why do you start there? And what did you see when you went to visit um, that region?
0: Um, it's a great question. It's also the foundational story of this book. I never thought that I would be writing a book about the border border. Uh, what really happened was I I was I left high school um, soon after 9-11. And I was a young person coming into adulthood in an age of dystopia, um, birthed by the global war on terror. I was also a, a dark-skinned brown immigrant woman um, who left home to study elsewhere. For the first time... As a young person, I was confronting a very specific kind of racialized violence that was everywhere. Of course, I saw this uh, play out more for my uh, brown and black friends, especially Muslim friends. And the war in Afghanistan was a constant, was there, was always just there. Um, I, I saw my friends being frisked. I saw so much that was inflicted in the name of security. And the war in Iraq started, and then Abu Ghraib images coming out. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I just really wanted to go to Afghanistan and just understand what was happening. Not so much in terms of, oh, why did they do this to us, which was a very orientalist way of looking at this, but understanding what had happened to a country in the aftermath of that. And ten years later, in, in in about 2010, I did finally go to Afghanistan. When I went there, I was uh, I was a graduate student at Yale, and the questions I went there with was very different. The question I went there with was trying to understand why I had the world's largest territorial army, the United States, had failed so miserably. But once I was embedding and I was at the border, I, it became very clear that that question that I went there with was actually quite incomplete, and what I was seeing was. Lot more expansive, travelling this porous border, now a site of not one but three generations of war, the way in which imperial violence, both by Russia, the United States, and Britain had affected these communities, and how these borders can become an important way of telling the story of a war that was really not told away as I was seeing it. And then that led me to travel the Afghanistan-Pakistan border and when i came back home um i still i still i still wonder how that idea came in and i i just asked myself what would i find if i traveled india's land border i was also much younger i was i was it was 8 years ago and i was much younger and i had <laughs> oodles of enthusiasm and, and 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 i believed this entire project could be done in a few months but it took i didn't realize it was going to take me 8 years the more i traveled um i think i changed i learned Uh, and that's why the book starts with the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. And another reason is that for many of the Afghans that I met, the racial memory was a border was not with Pakistan. It was not even with India as we think of it now. It was with a frontiered land where Afghans could travel from Peshawar all the way to Calcutta, and there were cultural, political relationships that 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 went farther than the millennia. And all of that was severed, was completely butchered. And even in Paktika province where I was, it was very common for Afghan men to travel to Hyderabad in India or uh, Calcutta or Bihar to find uh, wives and bring bring them back home. Um, So in that sense, even starting with Afghanistan, Pakistan was a way to destabilize our ideas of what South Asia should look like where does the borders of a, in, the Indian subcontinent begin and end?
1: So I'd like to shift now to talking about the borders in, um, in India's northeast, the borders with Bangladesh and Myanmar. Um, I think a lot of the stories you bring up from from that region are focused on the treatment of those deemed to be, quote unquote, illegal migrants. And I'm, I think, as, as you and I both know, that, that term is problematic, hence my use of the term Hence, hence me saying, quote unquote, but who exactly are these populations and how has the majority treated them?
0: Um, The reality is that the population, I mean, the, the problem or often the challenge that a writer or a researcher or a scholar faces in these places is to actually problematize what does it mean to think about these populations, but also when and where do these populations belong? Where does a timeline of belonging, right? Um, for instance, I haven't lived in India uh, for the last 17 years of my life. Um, so, and does my belonging end the moment I leave? Or does my belonging to a place begin the moment I start living? Um uh, Assuming my child tomorrow is born, and um, you know, uh, in a different place, where would where would their histories of belonging begin? Assuming I live here and my generations continue to live in the United States, when do they become as people who belong to this land? Right. So, when is the timeline, and how do we think about this? and often what you really see is that this region is a region that has gone through multiple acts of migration multiple in, uh, you know acts of conquests there's travel there is um, and people travel for many reasons and often migration is fueled not only by work it's also fueled by climate change it's fueled by violence so to start with, I think it's very important for us to kind of lay out those, those, those very fundamental um, threads that a people in a land are never static and it, it keep changing. Um, and in this, in this large chapter, there are three chapters. Um, one looks at the massacre that happens in Nelly, which targets uh, Muslim villages, uh, because it's a belief that these are illegal migrants and a massacre that kind of plays out, while many of them have been people who've lived in this land for a really long time. And the other chapter looks at, um, it's called The Tale of Three Detention, looks at three individuals who are detained um, as uh, foreigners or illegals, uh, illegal migrants, um, And in the book, I very clearly say that uh, somebody might be undocumented, but nobody can be illegal. One is the figure of a Rohingya refugee who makes his way into India, leaving violence and very quickly gets arrested and is held uh, as incarcerated for over a decade, even though he's already served a sentence because illegally crossing a border uh, that he was charged with is only a few years. And he just languishes there for years and years and years. Um, And in that chapter, you tell a story of how the crisis of statelessness was created in Myanmar how those who were citizens were very quickly transformed into non-citizens and now refugees and the histories erased. And that then becomes a background to tell how a similar story is playing out in India, where two women, both born and raised in, in modern-day Assam, whose families have long histories here, are again treated as uh, foreigners and held and in, in, in wrongfully incarcerated. And these are two instances where the women are lucky and they leave, but even the ordeal that they go through is, is very quickly um, reflective of what's happening. While majority of these communities tend to be Muslims, um, in reality, there are also Hindus uh, who are Hindu Bengali migrants who come into um, Assam, of the Partition, who are being held because they don't have enough documentation. So what you really see is a story of bureaucratic violence, um, and also deciding how someone is a citizen or not based on very arbitrary procedural grounds.
1: Right, and I think as we know over the over the past year in India, if not she went since since the since the passage of the kind of controversial citizenship acts, um, it's becoming I think quite explicit how the government. The Indian government sees who is or who is not a "quote unquote" Indian.
0: Yeah. Uh, also, there can only be one kind of an Indian, and you have to be—you uh, have to be Hindu. You have to be a caste. You can only believe in a certain kind of god. Um, you can only eat a certain kind of food. So it's basically collapsing the rich diversity of what it means to belong to multiplicities into one. Um, for example, instance, I'm born to a Hindu father, uh, but my parents come from two different castes, speak different languages at home. I grew up speaking English because my parents both spoke two different languages, but the food that I ate, um, was rich. It was rich because, um, it, it was, it was so cosmopolitan. The food had Muslim influences, the Deccan influences, it because it was by an ocean. There's the richness of the seafood, the dialects, the the spices. Imagine taking all of that away, uh, and collapsing all of us into these these singular, unitary individuals who have to uh, fit into these perfect cookie cutter molds of what uh, a Hindu nationalist government wants us to be.
1: So, I want to shift now to perhaps the most. Critical is the word I would use, but it's perhaps not the best one. But the most critical border, the border between India and Pakistan, Um, how has this border kind of loomed in the minds of both those people that live along the border and around India and Pakistan more generally?
0: I think it's very important for us to understand uh, why Pakistan looms so large in the political and historical memory. One, uh, it is not the most critical border, and I think all borders of, of India are, are both critical and contested, and it really depends on which border gets a disproportionate uh, uh, attention, and it's because the border with Pakistan. And that is because of partition. You know, uh, 17.8 million people changed, exchanged homes. This was nothing short of a holocaust both communities lost families homes uh women were raped uh, f- you know i mean it's just painful in so many ways um and i think that uh, that 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 kind of is still there second we cannot take away from the fact that both the governments of india and pakistan have very strategically weaponized the violence and the pain of the partition into a discourse that is deeply hyper-nationalistic. So today, if someone says Pakistani, it, it is almost as a proxy for calling someone a Muslim. But such, such characterizations are problematic because India is also home to a vast Muslim population. India is a secular democracy, at least. It used to be one on paper. And... I think those are all things that we forget. Uh, but in reality, when I travel through the border, what I saw was not hatred to Pakistan. What I saw was ways in which India's own military practices were affecting its people. Whether it's Operation Pokhran, where um, farmlands were used for military, uh, a very aggressive military posturing, um, the chapter of Sari Begum, where she talks about the bunkers being put in a land. And, and there's a very beautiful line that she says, you know, she says that, you know, nobody, any, everything bad that happened to me happened in this village. You know, nobody from Pakistan came and did this to me. And I think there's a sense of because you're constantly next to the sense of looming danger. And I think people actually have an immense sense of moral clarity about what's happening. Also, let's not forget that Punjab region, which forms a large chunk of the border with Pakistan, um, actually went through one of the worst forms of state violence with the disappearances, with the, the violence against the Sikh community. Similarly, in the borders in, in Rajasthan and Gujarat, you see a different kind of militarization. But increasingly, what you see is the Indian state's own violence against its own people in the name of protecting the border. Of course, it doesn't take away from the historical memory of the violence that many of these communities ex- experienced and, and continue to live with. And I think that's one of the reasons why this border perhaps looms larger. Uh, also, it is it appears in Bollywood films. It, it, it's, you know, uh, I think there's so much you know, that, that we are told early on um, that there's one of the reasons why I feel the border just looms large.
1: So I have one more question, or actually two more questions, but I'll ask them together. Um, first of all, uh, since you finished writing the book, um, and since the book's been published, um, what's happened in India and elsewhere in South Asia, um, kind of around these issues and these regions you're talking about. Um, and just to kind of build on that since the book's been published, what's the, what's been the reaction from readers in South Asia?
0: I think the book was written. Um, so my book manuscript was due towards the end of nineteen two thousand nineteen, and that's when so much happened between August and December of two thousand nineteen. Article three hundred seventy was revoked in Kashmir. Um, you had the Babri Masjid decision. You had the CAA NRC protests. There was a Shaheen Bagh protest. There was a pro democracy protest that just that just flourished in India. I was in India during the time. So I was part of these protests. I was traveling. And I wrote this, and I, when I was putting this together, you know, there's always the anxiety of a writer trying to make a deadline. But also there was a sense of hope that I think you had to be there to see what Shaheen Bagh meant, what these protocytes meant to people. i had never felt so happy and proud. But then soon after the the JNU violence happened, I was at JNU that night, uh, outside the gates, we heard, uh, I was there for a conference and we heard uh, students were being attacked and quickly a bunch of us jumped in a car and went out and we saw the spectacle that happened. How the police refused to protect the students but aided those who were attacking the students. And soon after the February violence in Delhi happened and you saw how an afraid state was cracking down on dissent. And the only way they knew to crack down on dissent was by unleashing an unprecedented violence. I mean, they're still digging out bodies from the canals from from, from February of last year. And then the, the COVID pandemic happened. And as I revised and rewrote the book, I wrote it with an immense sense of loss. I felt that... I felt that something had profoundly broken. But writing the book was important to me because I felt that I was telling a story that was important. While the story had started much before, it was important. But as we came close to putting the book together, since the book was going to be released in India and in the US and UK, and India is a different publisher, we wanted to be sure that the book, my publisher was convinced that I was going to be charged with sedition. And I think it was because the COVID pandemic happened that I was in charge because the, the government had other things to do. And then we did a legal edit and it came back with sentences saying, oh, this could be sedition, that. And one thing that we went ahead and I'm, I'm I'm immensely grateful for my publishers who stood and fought for this book is that I wrote everything that I wanted to write with absolute truth and integrity. I did not take anything out. The book is heavily sourced and cited But that's how the book went out, knowing very well that there could be something that was coming. The book has not been covered uh, as much by the mainstream, the progressives and and, and the smaller publications have covered it. But the book has been selling. The audience have still discovered it. Uh, Every single week since the book has been published, every week I get emails and messages and texts saying that this book was something that that this is their story. Either I, I get messages saying that this is their family's history that they're rereading through somebody else, or I get messages saying that they never knew these things happened. So it's quite interesting to see that while there's been absolute silence with the mainstream, because I've also been very critical of many of those who are editors and publishers of these mainstream spaces, the audience has still found the book. Um I mean, it's still quite early. It's still only a few months since the book came out. Um, The only thing that I can hope is that that more people find the time to read the book, but more importantly, the empathy to engage with the book.
1: So I think that's a great place to end our interview with Suchitra Vijayan, the author of Midnight's Borders, A People's History of Modern India. Suchitra, I... Actually, have one more question if you don't mind, um, <laughs> and uh, and my last question is, um, where else can people find your work, and what's next for you? Uh,
0: where else can people find my work? Um, I'm not a journalist in the in the traditional sense. I, I'm I'm a writer and I'm a researcher, so I almost everything I write is um, either on my website, or appears as essays. Uh, what next? Uh, I think it took me a really long time to be in a place where I get up every morning and I absolutely love the work I do. My work is not work. It is, it's important. Um, I get to read. I get to write. I, I get to engage with things that matter to me. I get to work with incredibly smart, committed people who are fighting for rights, who continue to speak on behalf of others, who continue to challenge the state. So um, in that sense, I think it's, I I will continue doing what I already do. Um, The next big adventure would be to, I'm I'm trying to write fiction, which I realize is incredibly difficult. I have, uh, I'm learning. Um, I, I don't know if I'll be any good. I don't know if I'll ever get to do anything with it. But I have immense respect um, for writers of fiction now. Uh, simply because it's just, it's, reality is easier to write. Fiction is is just, um, it's harder. Um, and that's it. And I'm hopefully, I, I, I also, with, with the, with um But more importantly, I just wish I I get to see um, the great joy of being me and and my life is that I I have had the remarkable uh, gift of meeting some incredible people over the years. Uh, Many of them are committed activists, writers, thinkers who continue to fight. And hopefully I get to see some of them soon. So hopefully that's the near future and the large, the longer future.
1: Well, I, I, I wish you luck on your, on your writing journey, especially in fiction. Um, so you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. You'll be listening to the Asian Review Books podcast now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want us to continue uh, to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned to learn more about who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Chitra for joining me today.